please uh, pray with me. Father in heaven, amazed we are that we have the very word of God. Help us now, I pray. Help me now, I pray. To listen. To receive. And to believe. Father, we do pray that we will receive your grace on this morning. To believe in a way that honors you. To live in a way consistent with our faith. In this we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to 1 Peter and chapter 2. 1 Peter and chapter 2. I want to read a passage, a longer passage, beginning with verse 11 through the end of the chapter. So 1 Peter, 1 Peter and chapter 2, please. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme Or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds... You have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, Peter has been laying out for us how we are to live in light of the resurrection of Jesus. He says that we have been born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That is to say, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we have hope. That is, the expectation of that which is good and that which is to come. And we have this expectation of good. We have this hope. And it's because Jesus is alive. He is our living hope. As long as he lives, we have this hope. Because he guarantees that that which he did... Is really true. And by believing in that which he really did in dying for us and being raised, then we're reconciled to God, forgiven our sins. 
And we have this inheritance that can't be taken from us. It's kept by God. Even suffering in the world that we experience can't take it away because even the suffering will strengthen, purify our faith, giving us even a greater hold, if you will, upon the salvation. And God has a great hold upon us and will not let us go. And so he says we're to live like this. We're to set our hope completely upon the grace that's to be brought to us when Jesus is revealed. That is to say, when Jesus returns, that's our hope, knowing that when he returns, he returns, all will be set right. All will be righteous. So we're to set our hope there. The earth will be renewed. We will be renewed as well. New bodies, imperishable, fit to live upon this new earth forever. And it will be a place where there's no tears, no crying, of course, no injustice, no poverty, no sin. And the misery that comes from it, sin will be eradicated from the new earth and from us who believe and who will live on it forever. So he says, that's your hope. Therefore, if that's your hope, that's what you want. If you see the glory of that, if you see the goodness of that, if that's the way it should be. Then he says, get on with it now and be holy. Even now. To strive for holiness. To live in such a way that you're one who's been set apart by God for God. To live in the fear of God. Trusting him, relying upon him. Depending upon him, you see. Honoring him. We're to live like that. And then he summarizes all of that and says, now, if you're living like that in relationship with each other, in the context of the life of the church, what this will mean is that you will be loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. You'll be living loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. Because, you see, a purpose for which we've been saved is for this brotherly love. That we love one another. And that's significant, you see, because he's saying to them, to us, that we're exiles, that we're sojourners, that we're strangers in this world. And, and when he refers to the people to whom he writes as exiles, he doesn't mean that they believed and thus were forced out. But simply, they believed where they lived, their home in that sense, they didn't move anywhere. But by believing, they became citizens also of the kingdom of heaven. And thus everything changed. And so they found that they didn't quite fit exactly in the context of the system of the world. And so you're exiled, so you need one another, so love each other. And also, and we didn't deal with this this time through First Peter, we've dealt with it before. But it's also, he says, you're being fit together, you're being built together into a spiritual house. In the sense of being a temple, the very temple of God, the place in which God dwells. And so God is to dwell among us. And if God is to dwell among us, there must be peace. There must be harmony. There must really be love, not only for him, but for each other. And so for God to dwell in us, then we must love one another really. That's the evidence that he really does dwell among us. So that from us, this kingdom of priests, who are knit together in this spiritual house, can then do what priests do, which is declare the greatness of God. All right. Now he turns from talking about how it is in the life of the church and says, now, how do you relate to the world on the outside? 
How do you relate to the world on the outside? Because unlike ancient Israel, ancient Israel, you know, is a theocracy. And so the laws in ancient Israel were God's laws. And, and everything was governed in ancient Israel to be governed in ancient Israel by God, for God, and all of that. In a sense, the way it is in the church. But, but in the world in which we live now, the church isn't a theocracy. We have no civil authority. And thus, as believers, we find ourselves in the world under the authority of others, under the authority of those who aren't believers. And so he speaks of that in, in civil matters. He speaks of that in various social institutions here, this institution of slavery and, and how we're to, to live in the midst of that. So that's sort of the flavor of what we're going to find as we plow through some more of First Peter. But what we find here first, and this is what I want to take up today, what we find here first in, in the section in which I read was that as believers, it is likely that we're going to find ourselves, because we're out of step with the world, suffering, being criticized, marginalized, for believing what we believe and for acting upon it that is doing good. Notice in verse 12, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. Peter uses that expression for unbelievers. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He's saying you're going to have people in the world who are going to look upon you as a follower of Christ and say that you're evil, that you're one who does evil. Now, Peter would say, if you're doing evil, then they have a right to say that. But his point is that you're following Christ. And so in believing and following after Christ, they're going to think you're an evil one. And he says, but keep doing good. Don't stop doing it. Keep doing good with the hope that on the day of the visitation of Christ, when he returns, perhaps he means that when Christ returns, that they will have seen your good works and believed and come to faith. And thus they'll glorify him on that day. But the point being that. The expectation of Peter is that as they live, they'll be seen, at least by some, as evildoers, even though they're trying to follow after Christ. And then he says also, there's, there's, there's authorities above us, civil authorities above us, if you will, that we're to submit to, that God has provided that with the, with, with, with the instruction, if you will, with the design, the desire that, uh, that the civil institution, the civil Authorities will, will bless those, reward those who do good, and punish those who do evil. But notice in verse 15, he says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In other words, even in that sphere, there'll be those who are foolish, who are ignorant, who don't understand the ways of God, and who actually think what we're doing that is good and honorable to God is actually not. But keep doing good, he said. Doing good. And then the third group that he mentions here are servants, domestic slaves, perhaps he has in mind, but servants who he who have a relationship with his masters. They're in submission to the master, as you might suspect the way this is worded. And yet there are some masters who are treating these servants harshly, crookedly, literally. And um, 
and to endure that notice. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you're beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You see, there are these servants. Now, we've talked before, so I won't labor this point. We talked before the slavery in the century in which Peter lived and wrote was different than our the atrocity with which uh, blights our history. Uh, that slaves were made a, a large part of the population, really significant part of the population often. And, and slaves often were what we might consider professionals, teachers, uh, doctors, uh, managers, and so forth and so on. And some were paid, and some were paid well enough to accumulate enough money in order to buy their freedom eventually. And some were treated well and, and all of that. But the, the point is, they were still slaves. They were still considered property, not people. And they still could be treated harshly without any recourse. And thus, there were these Christians who were slaves, servants, and they were being treated harshly. We don't know exactly the harsh treatment that they were receiving, other than to say that it was unjust, that it was unfair, that it was unwarranted, that it wasn't because they had done something wrong, but still they were being treated harshly, and so it was unjust. Uh, Peter contrasts their situation for those who did do uh, that which was wrong and got beaten for it. So perhaps these slaves are being beaten for doing that which is even good. But whatever it is, their feeling, and that's really the emphasis here, they're experiencing, they're feeling sorrows. So, so Peter's not referring really so much to the physical pain that they may be experiencing, though it may be that, but he's saying this is bringing you sorrow. There's a, there's a feeling here. There's a mental, emotional anguish that's going along with this injustice. And, and certainly there would be, wouldn't there? I mean, that's, that's a big part of suffering injustice. Oh, there might be pain and there might be loss in various ways. But there's something into the human soul that says, I shouldn't be treated this way. And it brings sorrow. It brings grief. It brings anguish to think, what can I do? I can't do but good. And if good brings this, then what can I do? It's that kind of injustice, really, uh, you see. And in this recurring theme, this worst case scenario, really, I think, of all the ones to be a slave and still be then treated unjustly. Uh, you think being a slave would be injustice enough. But in that case, you see, uh, Peter, the Holy Spirit, really calls these slaves to a life that's almost unthinkable. He calls them to still respect those who treat them unjustly. He calls them to endure and to continue to do good even in the midst of this suffering. Now the reason that's profound, of course, is because there's something in us, isn't there, that when we're treated unjustly to want to get back. There's something in us that when treated unjustly, we want to act in a, in a, in, in a way in kind, evil for evil. If you, you hurt me, I hurt you. 
And there's some fairness to that. Everything you did this, that's I should do that. And that's fair. The tables are even now. And, and he said, no, 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 no. That's not how I want you to behave in this situation, in this circumstance, even though it's unjust, even though you're filled with grief, even though it's painful. In all the midst of that, he said, I want you to behave in such a way that still respects and still continues to do good, even in the midst of this Injustice. I want you to continue to carry on as a believer in Jesus, as one like Jesus. So profound is this that one author put it like this. He said, what we, what we have here is not simply a rule to follow, but a grace to be experienced and received. See, this isn't just a rule. This is, okay, I've got to buck up. I've got to do the right thing here. I I better do, I'm a Christian, so I better act like one sort of thing. That's not it so much. It's so profound. It's so beyond us. It's so apart from us in terms of our gut level instincts as a human being. When injustice happens to us, then, 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 then we need a grace to be experienced. We need something from God. To enable us to live as he calls us to live. Not a rule to be followed, but rather a grace to be experienced and to be really received. That's the very point of it. Because notice what Peter is calling them to, as I said, to respect, to honor, to continue to do good and to endure In the midst of that. And then he grounds it all, he says, with to follow the example of Jesus. He committed no sin, so commit no sin in the midst of this situation. You are being sinned against, but commit no sin. He didn't, he wasn't deceitful. That is, he didn't lie to get out of the situation. And he didn't lie about them to make it worse for them. He wasn't deceitful. He continued to tell the truth. He continued to be honest. He continued to do good. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When they spoke harshly about him, he didn't speak harshly back about them. When he suffered, he didn't threaten them. He took it uh, and all of that. And so the question that I have for Peter is, how can you expect these slaves to do that? Now, hidden in my question is, how can you expect me to do that? but I like to hide behind these people in the Bible. You know, how, how, how can you expect these slaves to do that? And I, I suspect that if he expects them and, and can provide a rationale in a way, then, then it's true for me too. They have it way worse than I ever have. And so the situation is, how, how is it that he can expect this from them? And there's an expression. You know, there's some expressions that I carry with me in the scripture I would encourage you to carry as well. I just sort of pick them out. And we have to be careful when we pick them out. We don't pick them out of context. But, but this, is, this is an expression that's universal and how we ought to live. It's not exhaustive, but it's one of those pieces. It's, 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 an, it's something that comes to my mind from time to time when I'm in certain situations. Be it a good one, what I would consider a good one, or be it a difficult one. But he says... They're to live mindful of God. Notice in verse 19, the middle of it, at least in the English Standard Version, if you have an NIV, it says conscious of God. If you have a New American Standard, it says for the sake of your conscience before God. A little play on the word conscience and conscience. 
But be live mindful of God. That is aware of God. Not just aware of him. Not to know that he's here. But to be thinking about God in the midst of my circumstances. How does God see this? See, to be mindful of him in every circumstance. How does God see this? You see, when something good happens, my tendency is just simply to forget God and go, this is really nice and enjoy it. I'm not living mindful of God. Even when things good things happen. And when good things happen, I should be mindful of God. My first response when something good happens to someone like me is, wow, thank you, God. Right? I should be living mindful of God in the midst of it. And when difficult things happen, when suffering happens, when the sorrow comes, when injustice takes place and may hit me as it hit them or whatever, the, the point is that I'm to live mindful of God. I'm to try to think about this in the way that God sees it and thinks it, and to respond in a way that's mindful of God, in a way that God would desire for me to respond and to help me respond. That's what he says. So we're to live mindful of God. Notice how he puts it. For this, that is respecting not only the good and gentle masters, but the unjust one. For this, is a gracious thing when mindful of God. And so the question is, what, what am I mindful of? What were they to be mindful of when this injustice took place in their lives? It was all unfair, you see. It was all unfair. You see, we, we experience unfairness in our own lives, don't we? We experience some of this in our own lives, perhaps in a work environment. You did all the work, but you didn't get the promotion. Did all the work, but nobody said thanks. You did all the work, and nobody appreciated it. There you are, unappreciated in the midst of your work. Now, it doesn't sound like as bad as getting beaten, but you know the sorrow that comes from that, the discouragement that comes from that. You, you know the injustice that you may feel and some experience in marriage. You've been a faithful spouse, but your spouse hasn't. And you feel... The injustice of that. Context of parenting. You may have done your best, really. Whatever that means in the context of parenting. But you really tried to be a good parent, and yet your children, child has rejected you in some way. And you may experience this as a kid, although you have to analyze it a little more thoroughly. As a kid, you may feel like there's injustice all the time, right? try to be a good kid, but my parents never really appreciate that. So, how do you live in the midst of, how do you live in the midst of that as a friend in friendships? I feel like I've tried to be a good friend, how could you do that to me? I tried to be a good friend, how could you think I meant that? I tried to be a good friend, how, how could you, you know, all of that. We can go on and on in various ways that we've felt injustice and some may really be true. So how do we understand these things? How do we live mindful of God? How do we respond in a way that continues to do good to those who've hurt us? How do we continue to endure it? How do we live in the midst of all of that? What are we mindful of? Well, the first thing is that Peter says this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God. And then later he says, but if you, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing. In the sight of God. Now some versions will translate that. 
This is a commendable thing. This is the kind of thing that God approves. This is the kind of thing that God shows favor towards. That, that God says, yes, this is right and this is good. This is how you're to live. When, when, when people hurt you, you're to continue to do good to them. When, when your enemies come at you, you're still, in some sense, to love them. And, and so, saying this is good. This is commendable. It's a gracious thing, that is to say. It's evidence of the grace of God. But that is to say, this is even God's grace to you. To be in this circumstance, to have this opportunity, to be in this place where injustice has taken place so that you can respond in a way that's good and be pleasing to God. That's the grace of God to you. This is a gracious thing. Another thing to put on our minds is we're mindful of God when injustice happens and that which is unfair, when we're hurt by another, to tell ourselves first, this is a gracious thing. What else are we to be mindful of? He says, for well, this is a great, gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows for what credit is it? When you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But, when, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. This is a calling. See, when we come to faith in Christ, he was very honest when he said, Now, you know, the world didn't like me. So, you know, they're not going to like you. Now, that isn't universal, obviously. We have friends who are unbelievers who love us dearly and all of that. And there are, there are others and so forth and so on. But, but, but he's just saying, I just want you to know... That as a believer in Christ, as you live this out, you will encounter times when you'll be criticized for doing good, for believing in me. You'll be, you'll be marginalized because you belong to me. You'll be, you know, people will disassociate themselves from you. There'll be opportunities you won't have because you belong to me. I want you to know that I'm calling you to that. That's what you're called to. Apostle Peter told the churches that he planted. Very first message of churches that the apostle planted. You can read this in Acts chapter 14 early on in his church planting ministry. He says, you know, it's through many tribulations, many trials, many difficulties that we enter into the kingdom of God. And when he writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, this young pastor to encourage him, he says this, you know. Everyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. So just know that. This is your calling. God isn't asleep when these things happen. He's called you to this kind of life. To endure injustice by doing good. That's your life, you see. My life. In the midst of all of this, it is indeed our calling. We're to endure it in this way. Notice Peter would say later in First Peter in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called 
that you may obtain a blessing. This is when you're cursed, bless in return, you see. When they speak poorly about you, speak well of them. Don't revile back. Why? Because you were called to this. You were called to bless in this way. This is the will of God for you. In, in, in verse 17 of that same chapter, Peter writes, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Then in verse 19 of chapter 4, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will... Now, who are those who suffer according to God's will? Always in the Bible, the word will is complicated. But the sense here is that if you're suffering because you don't deserve it, that's not suffering according to God's will. But if you're suffering because you don't deserve it, that's according to God's will. That is what we're called to. We're not called to suffer because we deserve it, because we've done something. But we're called to suffer when we're doing good. You see, that's this sense of it. And so... And this helps us, you see, declare the excellencies of God. You remember what Jesus said and how he put it in Luke and chapter 6. He says, verse 27, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Now, you know, on a good day, we read those verses quickly. We make a couple of notes. We put away our Bible and all is well. But when we're suffering unjustly, we read those words. And they're like daggers in our hearts. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, don't demand uh, them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. But if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. He's saying, listen, I'm calling you to a life. That only the redeemed can live. Everyone else can love those who love them. I mean, that piece of cake. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners led the sinners to get back the same amounts. But love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Again, this isn't a business model. Catch the drift, right? Understand what Jesus is after here. And your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High. And here's why. For, because he, God, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And how do we know that? Because he's been kind to us. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. We're to live mindful of God. This is a gracious thing. We're to live mindful of God. We're called to this. He calls us to this. It's our calling. And he says, I give you this suffering even so that your faith would be strengthened in chapter 1 of First Peter, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, 
You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, now you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He said, this is perfecting you. This is readying you to meet Jesus. All the hurts, you see. All the unfairness. All the how could they. He says, now this is how. I want you to live. It's for your benefit. For God's glory. So mindful. And then he says this. We're to live mindful of the example of Christ. Verse 21. For to this you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example. So that you might follow in his steps. Now we said all along that. Jesus is more than an example to us, but not less. More than an example to us because he did something that was necessary for us, for him to do. We couldn't do for ourselves. He did it. So he's more than an example, but he's not less than an example. He's been given to us that we may follow in his steps. Now, one of the steps in which we're to follow in Jesus is the injustice that he experienced and the way that he handled it. The injustice that he experienced and the way that he handled it. We are to walk in his steps. He's left us an example. Now, no one on the face of the earth has experienced more injustice than Jesus. Because no one is less deserving of being treated poorly than Jesus. No one is more deserving of worship and praise than Jesus. And yet, he was born in a food trough. He was born to parents who at his circumcision could only afford to offer pigeons. I suspect he lived in some shadow of the legitimacy or perhaps illegitimacy of his birth. His self-description, foxes have holes. Son of man has no place to lay his head. He should have had a palace. A temple. He had to borrow the donkey upon which he rode into the city of Jerusalem. He had to borrow the room that he spent the last evening with his disciples with. And when he was crucified, he died naked and penniless. They had taken everything off him and everything from him. And they killed him unjustly. And in the midst of that, he didn't revile when they reviled him. Didn't defend himself, really. Spoke the truth. Didn't threaten. That's how we're to live. That's that example, this example of Jesus, this very one, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. And you say, how could he do that? Well, here's what we have to be mindful of. We have to be mindful of God, as Jesus was mindful of God. Because he entrusted himself to the one 
who judges justly. Now, you know, sometimes there's remedies for the injustice that's put upon us. I mean, this verse 14, that uh, the governor is as sent by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That's, that's true, and that's available to us. So there are remedies for us when injustice happens against us. There's civil remedies, personal remedies, perhaps. But there are times when there are no remedies. And even when there are remedies, this still should be our attitude. I still must be mindful of God. I realize I've been hurt. Oh, yeah, there may be a remedy to to kind of alleviate that hurt in some way, shape or form, bring justice in some way, shape or form, even in my own context. But the truth of the matter is my attitude still has to be the same. My attitude has to still be I'm living mindful of God. I know this is a gracious thing that happened. I know that I'm to respond graciously. I know that I've been called to this. I know that I need to follow the example of Christ and not be harsh and not revile back and not trade evil for evil of any of that. I know that has to be true. I have have to be free of all of that, and then I can seek a remedy, I suppose. But but the truth is that sometimes there is no remedy. and, And Jesus, there he was, knowing he could do, would do nothing to stop what was happening to him. But he entrusted himself, really. You could translate this literally. We've added the word himself. He entrusted to God. Everything. The circumstance. The people who did it. Father, forgive them. The people who did it. His own well-being. He entrusted all of that to God. Knowing that his father judges justly. Thus we too. And it frees us. It frees us from bitterness. It frees us from anger. Frees us from revenge. Okay, justice wasn't done. Justice will be done. With God, justice delayed is never justice denied. We need to live mindful of that. And it frees us from bitterness and anger and vengeance and revenge. And even from self-protection, self-defense. Worrying about all of that. Just God. He's the one who judges justly. And then notice what he says about Jesus. He says, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree. Now, I need to live mindful when injustice happens. When I'm hurt, I need to live mindful of the fact That Jesus bore my sins in his body on the tree. Now, why do I need to live mindful of that? I need to live mindful of that so that I will be merciful. You know who is one of the greatest perpetrators of injustice in history is? Me. See, the greatest injustice is the fact that we do not love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the greatest injustice of all. There hasn't been a human being, save Jesus, who's experienced that kind of injustice, really. I don't mean to belittle the injustice that others have received. 
but it's simply true. And when I read this, that he himself bore my sins, if I might be personal about it, in his body on the tree, I realize that he took the penalty for my injustice. And thus, even as I receive hurt unjustly, and I don't revile back, and I love and all of that, and I'm taking upon myself, if you will, that injustice and not requiring them to pay. That's what he did, Jesus, for me. I must endeavor to forget that. I must live mindful of that always. This is a gracious thing. I've been called to this. He's my example and my Savior. And then it says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see, in so dying for my sins, what He did is He freed me from not only the penalty of them, but from the power. I don't have time to read Romans 6, but read it in your leisure and realize that, that, when, that when Christ died, I died so that when He rose, I rose to live in this newness of life, this righteousness, this, this new life. And He says, all right, now because of that, you're freed. And so trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit to help me, he says, now you can live like this. You really can. You really should. You really can. So that I may live to righteousness. And then I need to live mindful of this, that he is my shepherd and the overseer of my soul. For he says, for you are straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Do you know how straying sheep return to the shepherd? Here's how straying sheep return to the shepherd. Straying sheep return to the shepherd like this. First, they get themselves really lost. And then they feel the arm of the shepherd around their bellies. And they look up at the shepherd and they say, I'm back. Right? That's how they return. Right? The shepherd and overseer of our souls comes and gets us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. You see, one of the great pains of injustice that we feel, the hurt that we feel, isn't only that they did this to me, but God, I belong to you. How could you let this happen to me? It's real. We feel it in all kinds of ways, but we feel it most pointedly there. And he says, no, no, no. You need to be mindful that he's the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Do you need evidence that he's the shepherd and overseer of your soul? The evidence is that he saved you, that he came and got you. That when you were in the worst place imaginable, way worse than anything a human being can do against you. When you were in the worst place imaginable, when you were dead in your own sins, when you were condemned by God, he came and got you. He, the shepherd, he wouldn't allow you to stray. He got you and brought you back. And so if he did that, won't he also, in the midst of this situation, uh, do well by you, if you will? Won't he rectify someday won't he and of course the answer is yes he's our shepherd the overseer of our soul because as I mentioned before at the time of our confession this morning that to a sheep a shepherd is sovereign he's the one who leads he's the one who directs he's the one who guides he's the one who provides he's the one who heals that's the shepherd 
And our shepherd has healed us spiritually, if you will, the point here. And so now we need to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. Entrust ourselves to this one who really is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. He acts graciously towards us. He calls us to difficult situations and circumstances. But he gives us an example to follow. And more than that, he gives us the way to follow him. And he helps us in the midst of all of that. And he'll never leave us. Therefore, you see, I know that I need not ever want. Even in the midst of hurt. For he is my shepherd, I shall not want. I know that he'll lead me and he will provide for me and he will nurture me and he will nourish me. Because he's my Shepherd, and I shall not want, and he shall make me lie down in green pastures. He'll lead me by still waters. He'll restore my soul. Every place he leads me will be right. He'll lead me in paths of righteousness. Because, you see, I bear his name. For his name's sake, Jesus. And even in the most difficult of circumstances, even though when I face death, he'll still be with me. He'll still be there in the midst of the most difficult circumstance you could ever imagine. He'll still be with me and he'll still be there to protect and provide his rod and his staff. They'll strengthen me. They'll comfort me. And even in the midst of my enemies, he'll feed me. He'll give me his word and he'll say, be mindful of this. Know this is a gracious thing. Be mindful of this. Know this is your calling. Be mindful of this, the example of Jesus. Be mindful of this, that he died for you. Be mindful of this, that he restored you. Be mindful of this, that he's the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Even in the midst of my enemies, he'll lay out this table before me. He'll anoint my head with oil. My cup will overflow. Joy will happen. It will come. It cannot be ever extinguished. It will come in the life of one who is the sheep of this great shepherd. And you know, he'll pursue us all the time forever with goodness and mercy. We don't need to, we never need to worry what's following us. Because what's following us is goodness and mercy. Don't need to know, worry about what's behind the corner. What's behind the corner is goodness and mercy. It will pursue us all the days of our life and we needn't worry We'll dwell in this house forever. Therefore, love your enemies. Pray for those who speak ill against you. Bless them, don't curse them. Do good. Be free. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me, for us. That you would grant to us Not a rule, but an experience of grace. So that when we experience that which is unfair, which is unjust, and we feel the sorrow and the grief of that, it would not make us bitter, it would not make us angry, it would would not make us defensive. But still we would continue to do good and to bless. So help us, I pray. Father, as a congregation, we ask that you would bless these efforts of ours in this Vacation Bible School coming up. God, it's huge 
for us. We love doing it, but most importantly, Father, it is a great time for us to speak the truth and to love children. And so, Father, we pray that you would grant grace for many children to come and for all to hear and believe. And Father, may we be able through this mechanism of VBS to speak the truth to children who've never heard it and through these children to their parents and to others as well. Father, be with us. Give us strength and help. We pray for Tom Stofak and his family on the passing of his father. We pray for Michelle Beard and her father as he's in hospital. We pray for healing and help for him. For so many others, Father, that experience difficulty in this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction.